Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to George Ezra and Friends, episode one. My name is George Ezra. I'm a musician, I'm a singer, I'm a songwriter, and I first released music back in 2014 and have been busy touring the world, writing and recording ever since. So our guest this week, our very first guest, is Ed Sheeran. Uh, Ed was, in fact, one of the first people that I reached out to to get involved with the podcast, um, and he was willing and up for it straight away, which was amazing. It took a little while to get space in the diary. Um, he's a busy boy, after all. Um, but yeah, we made it happen. I headed round to his. He welcomed me into his home, and we sat down and we chat all things Sheeran. Just a quick warning, there is some strong language throughout this episode. Um, just in case you were thinking of putting the show on with kids in the car or running around the house, I just thought I'd give you a heads up. I'll stop waffling. Here it is, Ed Sheeran. Thank you for having me, for starters. Of course. It's very, very cool. Very kind of you. I have got questions that I want to get to. Cool. But I've, of everyone that I've sat down to speak to, I've kind of not planned that much because there was. I started to write down where I wanted to start and I was like, I don't, there's just a lot. Yeah. So I'd rather just see where we end up. It, like for my sake, so that it works kind of chronologically, it'd be amazing to start before it started, if that makes sense. Yeah. Over the years, I've heard you talk about Van Morrison, Bruce Springsteen. There was another name as well that stands out. Damien Rice? Eric Clapton. Yeah, Eric Clapton. That, that was, was the name. Yeah. And Damien Rice. Yeah. But were they, was that what, you fell in love with at what age did you realise that music was something that you were going to pursue uh, 11 I was watching the Queen's Jubilee and Eric Clapton came on and played Layla and I just loved it I loved it and uh, I uh, there was a what was it it was a Westfield guitar from Cash Converters and it was £80 and I went went out and saw it the next day and then asked for it for Christmas um, and got it Oh, well, maybe it was my birthday. I think it was my birthday. So I got this, yeah, guitar, and then I learnt that riff and played it over and over again. What, Layla? Um, yeah. That's that, a good place to start. Yeah, it was like, well, I, I always wanted to be the electric guitar player, and then I'm like, as soon as I found Damien Rice, I kind of, like, gave up on it, because it's very, t- like, to be, like, John Mayer level, it's, like, a lot of, lot of practising, but to, like, strum chords is pretty doable. So as soon as I, like, went to go and see Damien Rice and just saw him stand on stage and play for two hours on his own and I was like oh well I'll do that <laughs> like it just it just seemed more simpler than getting a band and learning how to shred and then was there would, are you from a town a village is it big enough to be a town no well I mean they've actually just within the last two years they've just doubled the population because they've just built loads of new houses Every, everyone there's not that keen on it um, they're doing that everywhere yeah like it's, there's too many kids for the school now they're going to have to build another high school there was 2,000 people in my town when I lived there. There's probably close to 4,000 now. But yeah, 2,000 people there. And I went to a state school which had probably had like 1,100 people. There's probably like 1,600 people there now. But it was like a very small pond. For me, it was like I wrote songs and played. There was like a couple of other bands and there was like a few Battle of the Bands events. But it, like realistically, you, could, you can kind of like complete it very soon you know you do a couple of gigs in Ipswich a couple of gigs in Norwich and then that's kind of it so I had to make the move to London but then when I found when I got to London I, I remember my first gig was at the, the Liber, Liberties in Camden it's now called the Camden Head and I was playing with five other singer-songwriters that were all late 20s early 30s and I, they were all really fucking great and how and old I, were you I was 16 and like I, and I remember or maybe I was 15 
2006, yeah, I was 15. And I remember, like, going on after them and being, like, so, like, deflated because, like, in my hometown, I was, like, one of the only people to write songs and I came off off stage with all these, like, professional musicians that were so much better than me and I just remember being, like, I need to, I really need to get that good. So that's why I moved to London and just played every single day. That's what I was going to ask. If you come from a small town, were there people you were sharing records with? Like, oh, I like this. What about you? Did it? Was there a scene? I had of one friend. Oh no, actually two. A guy called Stephen and a guy called Dan. Dan's actually a really still like. I've just actually set up a cafe with him. He lives in Paris now, but uh, we were, we were all into Nizlopi. Nizlopi was our like shit that we loved, and we all went to the gigs together. And yeah, um, found like the EPs that you could only find in certain areas like we were like big 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 fans yeah and you shared that together and then so then you moved to London at 15 16 no I moved late 16 I was ju- just turning 17 I started AS levels and I left after the first time how, ba- how, how about you did you did you do university and all of that I did one year at uni and then was like fuck this yeah it was I kind of met my manager not looking for a manager and it was that conversation of, well, which, what are you going to commit to studying yeah. about music or doing music? <laughs> well, I, I mean, that's what I always found. I, I, my mum my mom was always, like, really worried that I wasn't going to university and getting a, a, a higher degree. And she enlisted me in uh, the Academy of Contemporary Music in Guildford, which I went, I went to for, like, a couple of weeks. And I remember one of the first lessons there, I was learning a Queen song. And I was like, but I don't want to play a Queen song, I want to play my songs. Like, what, like, and it was uh, soon after I joined, that the, the reason I left, I mean, God, God bless them, they are, they are a good place for, it is a good place to focus people in, but it just wasn't for me. I got asked on a Just Jack support tour and I had to take a month off university. And I remember saying, uh, I've actually never spoken about this and I don't want to like, put them in hot, hot water, but I remember saying, like, can I go on this tour? And they were like, well, not, not really, like, your place is probably going to be filled by the time you get back. And I was like, well... Surely the end goal is to be a support act on tour. So surely, like, if you're going to a musical thing, you should be. So I, so I, I, I ended up leaving there and then going on this tour. But, like, yeah, it's, it's the same thing. Like, I do think if you know what you want to do, you might as well just... Do it. Just do it, yeah. But, did that, like, a, a support tour with Just Jack doesn't come out of... Completely out of thin air. No. So you you must have even when you were there st- committing to studying, you must have been gigging relentlessly then even. Well, well, I, I was only there for a couple of weeks really. Like it was. Uh, so when I moved to London, I lived. Uh, there was a venue that ran gigs, and I lived above it, and it was called T Birds in Finsbury Park on Blackstock Road. And the guy that ran the gigs was this guy Lester, um, and Lester was the guy that eventually put me in touch with Just Jack. He knew Jack quite quite well. Um, but yeah, there was a website called Music Born. Uh, that my mate ran and he had a list of every single open mic night in London so when I got did you ever use that? I used one in Bristol and it was kind of like a yellow pages for open mics and you just sent a message to every single one so every night of the week it was just like and it's, what I used to find was a lot of them no longer existed so you'd ring and be like oh, you've got an open mic tonight and they'd be like no, no we no. haven't done that for three years it's like shit okay ring the next one <laughs> have you got an open mic tonight yeah, yes that's great yeah no man yeah it re- and it really it, it really worked because like oh, also like some, some of the nights had like multiple nights on the night so in Finsley Park there was one at the World's End one at T-Birds and then one a little bit further down in Angel on a Thursday night so you'd go on a Thursday play at 6 play at 8 and play at 10 and you'd you'd done three gigs yeah it was uh, so it was like four years of doing that and um, 
you know, it was super, super fun. And the people that people that I was playing with were, would always put me up at their, at their at their places. So I never really like. I get asked a lot, "How did you afford it?" And I never really had to afford anything because I got free free drink and free food from the places I was playing. And then I got free bed and board by the promoters that I was playing for. So it was actually like I had a kind of heated discussion with an interviewer the other day that uh, was talking about um, sort of like people who get into music who come from like wealthy backgrounds. Mm. And he was like, oh, obviously, because you lived in London for a long time. And I was like, no, but like you can actually do it without coming from a wealthy background. You There's can also the drive of an adolescent of just like, you don't give a shit if you're sleeping on a sofa or if you're Or eating. if you don't shower for a week. Yeah, like, you don't it's care. Not like, yeah. And if you're, there's nothing more appealing. If you love music, Doing there's shows, nothing. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. the first time you figure out you can just get up and play shows, it's like, oh you my. You just want to do it yeah. the whole time. So even though you're like, focused in London, you're living above this place, were you venturing outside to other towns? Yeah, because I was getting booked by ran- like random people. So there was like, um, I went on a, a little tour with a bunch of musicians in London. Where, uh, I, was, I, I was 16 at that point, And it was, uh, there was a really fantastic singer who I, I, I hope still is making music called Gideon Conn. I, I just remember being amazed that he was. He went on tour with Jason Mraz, and I was like, "Oh my god, that's so fucking cool!" But he hosted us in Manchester, and then there was someone else that hosted us in Glasgow, and someone else hosted us in York, and like we kind of went went around. And through doing that, I made contacts to play people. So I'd go up to Manchester a lot, I'd go down to Brighton a lot, Birmingham quite a bit, Cheltenham, Bristol. I played the Fleece. I um, love the Fleece. And what st- there's the Croft. Yeah, yeah. I played the Croft a bunch of times. You must have um, done the Louisiana at some point. It was over the river. No, I guitar tech from Nisloppy when they played in the Lu- Louisiana. Yeah, but I, I, never, I never played there. I was always kind of like hankering for a support slot. I was kind of just there being like, guys, like, doing your guitar, like, maybe <laughs> yeah. I can open it. And I, I got to open up for them once, which was cool. But um, no, so I went, I, I went about quite a bit, but I most, mostly played in London. Yeah. And it was weird because when I, I, I remember get, I got my booking agent whilst I was on tour with Just Jack. Oddly enough, this is a really weird story. Uh, when I was we when I was doing the Shepherd's Bush gig, my dad pointed. We were in the, like a backstage area. And my dad pointed over and he was like, "That's Guy Chambers over there, the guy that wrote uh, with Robbie Williams." And so I went up to this guy and I was like, "Hey man, like nice to meet you. I'm Ed. I opened up. Um, have you got a card? Can I like get get in touch?" He's like, "No, like I, I haven't been giving give me your email and I'll and I'll hit you tomorrow." And then I got hit by this guy the day after called John Ollier. And I was like, that's weird. I don't remember giving my email out. But like, it, you know, I'd been all around London. Mm. And it turned out that I'd thought this guy was Guy Chambers and it wasn't. And, <laughs> and he's, now, he's now my agent that I've, got, that I've got now. But when I, when I got him, he was like, you can't play London gigs anymore. We have to, yeah. have to start building it. You know, you, if you want to play cargo, you can't be playing fucking the world's end in Finsbury yeah. Park. So, uh, and I remember for the first two months just being like, what the fuck am I meant to do? Because like, that was my only way of getting places to stay or like any form of money from selling CDs. So uh, it was quite a weird shift not doing free gigs, oddly enough. Yes. You know? And did you have a manager at this point? I did. So I got my manager, my booking agent, at, on the Jack tour. So Stuart, Amazing. my manager, that was managing Jack at the time as well. And that's, it's just funny how you, you can, and it's only in hindsight, but you don't notice it at the time, but you're going, okay, actually that was when I was building a team. Like that's when what is essentially a lad on stage with a guitar is yeah. becoming, there's a bit more of an infrastructure and there's a bit more thought going into it other uh, than... Well, and, and they're all the people that are in the team now. It's weird. And the guy who is now my tour manager, I remember I, I had my first 
paid gig at the Bournemouth Fire Station. It was just after I brought out this EP called the Collaborations EP, and I brought it out, and I was getting a grand for this gig, and it was like, that, I mean, that's life-changing money when you're fucking 20 years old. And uh, I, yeah, I'm getting a grand for this gig, and uh, there's a thousand kids turning up. And my manager was like, we need, we need a tour manager. And I was like, no, we don't, mate, because that's 250 quid that's going to someone. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to go and do it. I've got my rucksack, I've got my loop pedal, I'll do the sound check, I'll collect the fee, and I'll hang out. And I remember I got there, and it was just like, you, you, have you ever done student nights where it's just fucking, like, yeah. drunk? Yeah, yeah, and they're, like, they're wheedling the disco after you yeah, finish playing. Yeah, mate, and, the, um, and they're sweet. They're sweet people, but they're just fucking leery lads. And there was it was just me. It was just me, and I had a... A real shocker, um, you know, sound checking on stage while getting beer bottles chucked at me, and I'm like, oh, I haven't even fucking gone on yet. And uh, yeah, so ever since then, I got my tour manager. He's now my my tour manager. But yeah, is the be there is the baptism baptism of fire. I don't, I I'm not negative about things like X Factor, for instance. But the thing I do say is like, I just they're missing out on the toilet circuit. They're missing out on the yeah. Well, I'd say so. I have this argument with people all the time because like. I've, I feel like the general public Joe Schmo will think the X Factor is like a shortcut to success. I actually think it works against you because, like, you, you then have to work twice as hard when you're out of it to convince people that you're there to stay. I remember I was on, when I first released my first single, One Direction had just released their first single, and they were on all the things that I was on, working just as hard as me, but then doing, like, all the extra stuff to convince people that they were a legitimate act. And I was there being, like, going on... Like Chris Moyles or Chris Evans being like, oh, he's he served his time, so we're going to play a song. Whereas One Direction, they people were like, no, 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 like you know, this song is going to be big. Like it, I actually felt it worked against an X Factor act. You know, the thing I'm always most inspired and impressed uh, about yourself is your work ethic. Like mm. it's just relentless um, and love for it. It's not. It's the reason I started the podcast was because there comes a point when you realise no matter what it is people do musically, it takes a base level amount of work and love to to, to maintain it. Yeah. You know. Well, I, th- I do think, like, I, are you aware of Foy Vance? Yes. So Foy's, I think, I think my favourite artist ever. Like, Foy is, like, everything I love in an artist. And I've... Had the pleasure of getting to know him and writing with him, and he's signed to the imprint that I was given. And what I've learned about him is he's like the most talented singer and the most talented songwriter, the most talented performer that I think I've seen. But he's like so cool with not doing, like not having like a huge success. He's so cool with like hanging out in the Highlands with his daughter and making pasta. That's his thing that he wants to do. And it really made it really makes me see that like. Talent is like such a small percentage of why people have success. And I spoke to um, an example about this because he said to me, he was like, look, mate, I'm not like the best singer in the world, but I can work harder than the best singer in the world. And that's that's what I have to offer. So I do believe that persistence and the work ethic is actually what drives you to the point that you want to be. And when I got into the industry, my first album came out when... uh, Adele's 21 came out like and she's your competition and you're like fucking hell like I'm not better than Adele but I everyone at the record label was like James Blunt became massive because he fucking worked harder than everyone else so I was like get me his diary from the back to bedroom year and we'll do all of that times two and so we basically did everything we could I was go- I played on fucking Hollyoaks randomly enough 
uh, <laughs> uh, fucking when I met Paul McCartney, he said I saw you on Hollyoaks. So, you know, sometimes sometimes these things, you know. Gone Macca's out of himself as a Hollyoaks. Weird, isn't it? Weird, That's crazy. Uh, but no, but like I I was doing all the things that other artists were thinking were uncool. I I would make sure I'd do just because they were. I was doing something, so I'd go and do like tween programs or teen programs or like late night shows in Germany that no one fucking watched just because it was something to do. My argument for it was like, you know, there was a lot of people that were like, oh, this show isn't cool, but I was like, but I think my song is. You know, if I'm playing it on that, then like, you know, it's not like I'm, it's not like I'm selling out musically. I'm just performing on a show that people don't necessarily think is cool. But if people watch that, then they might like the song. But there's also this thing I remember on. There was a point on this record Divide where I woke up and went to my local supermarket just before I'd left I had watched uh, the Red Nose Day video you did with Corrupt FM <laughs> but then I got there and it was either OK or Hello and you're on the cover of that yeah. now anyone watching Corrupt FM doesn't buy OK or Hello yeah. so therefore doesn't know that that exists anyone that's buying that probably that isn't aware do that, yeah. it doesn't matter like it, people only know about the sources they go to but people d- but the weird thing is it does matter for some people you know there's like there was a a singer that I came up with and I remember him being like pissed off that he had really young teenage fans screaming at his gigs and yeah but do you know what I'm gonna just I don't know who that is but fuck that fuck yeah what are you who are you to decide who it is is turning up to your gigs and and whether you're better than that or not it's not that's not a thing yeah I've never been cool I've never ever been considered cool I've never been critically loved there's never I've never been 10 stars on pitchfork or whatever or had like enemy skinny jeans people coming to my gig like I I've never been cool but I love what I do I really really love and I love the music I make and I I don't know why you'd care what other people think about that half time break now, I can't uh, promise that this is going to be anywhere near as exhilarating as, say, the Super Bowl halftime break, but I'll do my bloody best. What a lovely conversation with Ed Sheeran. I, th- I found it extremely interesting, this chat. It was a real pleasure. Um, now, while you're all here, while I've got you all, I'd love to remind you that my new album, Staying at Tomorrow's, is now available to pre-order. So it will be out on March 23rd. Uh, it's a collection of songs that are very close to me. Um, songs about escaping and dreaming and taking yourself away from the world around you, which I think we could all do with a bit of that in our lives. Um, yeah, so you can pre-order that now, and you can get it in a load of mad varieties. So there's a pink vinyl, a picture disc vinyl, a signed vinyl, a signed CD. You can get it on bloody cassette. And of course, all of these versions, you'll also get a download link. So that will be delivered to your front door on the day of release. And uh, yeah, I mean... It would be amazing to know that you've all got a copy of that. It would be brilliant. Um, and of course, uh, georgeezra.com is also the place to go for any tours or festival appearances or any general news day-to-day. Um, let's not take up any more time than we need to. Let's jump back into the conversation. Here we go. This is Ed Sheeran. I had zero insecurities before I became a singer. And I, I was born with ginger hair. So, like, that alone should have given me some sort of insecurities, but I fucking didn't care. Like, I'd have, like, a beer belly, ginger hair, wouldn't wash, wear, like, scraggly clothes, and I, like, I, I didn't give a fuck. But then as soon as you become a 
in the public eye and people start picking holes in you, you start thinking these things are actually bad. You just start like, oh, am I fat? Like, should I actually fucking care if I'm fat or not? Like, really, like, even if I was, like, 16 stone and chubby, like, huge, should I actually care? Like, really? Is that, is that actually something that's, like... I mean, I cover it well, but I've got a cute little beer belly. I get a bit But of that's a because out. we drink beer and like beer. Like, that's, <laughs> that's the thing. That's what I've been getting back to now, because I, like... There was a time... Actually, when I first met you around that BBC Awards time, I was doing, like, no carbohydrates and, like, just drinking vodka and slim fucking tonic and shit, shit like that. And I'm looking back at that, and the reason I was doing it was because I was looking at people like Justin Bieber or, like, the One Direction lot and being like, oh, this lot, they're so photogenic and they've got these six-packs and they look great. And I was like, oh, I should look like that. And then I kind of, like, should I fuck? Like, I like, I like beer. I like pizza. I like, and no, one, no one's bought my records based on me looking a certain way. So I think it's like getting... Out of the mindset of yeah, it's, that. it's part of it that's really just something that I really struggle with is um, red carpets when there's a photo board, the flashes oh, mate, that yeah. they use, and all of or a lot of my peers that are at the same thing, they're travelling with their own makeup artist and they've got all of this on, and I just and they know how to do it, as yeah, well. and they so know they how get, to like do the look, and yeah, but then they come off and you see the photos of them and they look healthy, and then there's the one of me <laughs> and it looks like like just white horrible it's pasty mad, English. It's I think you feel the same, the same <laughs> as me. Your kind of drive and passion for music, do you think that would be the same regardless of what industry you went into? Your kind of work ethic and... I think so, yeah, because I, I originally wanted to do art. I really, originally wanted to paint and um, I used to do that all the time, all the time. And I, I think my passion just shifted and I just did, did music. But I think, yeah, if I... My dad's very similar to me. Like, if we set our mind on something, we'll we'll do it. We'll do it. So I think that's um, I think it would like any anything. He he always maintained that whatever you do in life, make sure you love it and make sure you work harder than anyone can with it. Never never settle for Plan B. Just always go for your main plan. Just make sure you work hard, and it it'll eventually happen. Like my brother's a classical composer, and he you know he's two years older than me, and he's struggled for the last sort of like 10 years to become a class composer and it's just happened for him it's just he's just doing these like massive fucking films and uh um orchestrations on on, on stuff and that i mean that's a testament to it as well like it does eventually happen Dan- daniel craig's first fucking big movie was i think he was over 35 i think morgan freeman's first big movie was when he was 50 like ricky gervais is a great one as well if that's kind of like yeah. you hit at 40 or whatever you're but that's like persistence isn't it like you go I do think I was always going to choose one thing and work hard to get it, yeah. Something I really want to talk about as well is your writing, your ability to write not just amazing songs but regularly, you know, it's, yeah. the, was that a conscious thing to say, okay, I need to, do you have a kind of aim to come up with a melody or a lyric a day, is there, do you set aside certain days? Yeah, it was, I got told really early on that to become a good songwriter you had to treat it like an instrument and write a song a day so um i don't really do it as much anymore because you know i end up doing a lot of promo but if i'm if i go in to write a song i'll make sure i do like five in a day even if they're completely shit you just like write something to get it out there the day that i wrote shape of you that was one of five and the other four were like so so you know and will they have been like four attempts on the same theme like will you go in and write no. five shape of views no i'd go in i think the first song we did we wanted to do like a country song the second song shape of you was originally a, a little mix cut so we were like let's write a song for little mix um and that's 
where that I know people say it was like Rihanna and stuff, but that kind of kind of came later. Um, and then uh, the next song we did was for a boy band, and like it was just a day of let's just write fucking loads of songs. Hit Steve Steve Mack, who I did it with, he wrote "Flying Without Wings," which is. It just, <laughs> just makes him fucking king. Um, and he also did Susan Boyle's uh, I Dreamed a Dream album. He's got this huge, huge fucking plaque. And, uh, like, because everyone says, everyone's always like, oh, yeah, no, it's, you know, Steve, Steve Mack doesn't do some cool things. And he's like, well, 14 million sold's quite cool. And I'm like, yeah, mate, yes, it is. But uh, so we, he had a list of people that he was pitching for. So we went in and we wrote for all these people. Um, and that's usually how I do it. Like, I'm rarely... I've just done a soundtrack for a movie that I wrote all myself in my kitchen and made with, with, with Joe. So we, we just recorded it. And, and that's a very, like, 100% me project. But most of the time, I'm writing songs with people that I ex respect and admire. When you're writing for yourself, do you switch off the valve that is also writing for other people? Or is it kind of, let's write a great song and then at the end of it, decide? Yeah, kind of. I mean, like, halfway through, you kind of know. So, like... And it's not even whether it's a good song or not. It's just it just yeah, clicks, it, it, just it, clicks with you. So like with Castle on the Hill, I was like, no, no, this one's for me. Let's finish this one for me. Yeah. And do you ever do you ever walk into a room, say you were saying Little Mix, you walk into a studio and go, right, today we're going to write a song for Little Mix, and therefore you're the way that you're approaching that song. Yeah. So I did a song uh, that I th I think I think is going to be for them now, but for Camila Cabello, and uh, I went in and I was like, well, if I was Camila, this is what I'd like to sing, and if I was a fan of Camila, I'd want her to have this. Okay, like, I see. Yeah, so you kind of tick the boxes with the uh, the Liam Payne song that uh, I helped on the. Um, Do you ever hear that strip that down song? That that was very much like all the members of One Direction come out and had their own little thing, and I was like, he needs to have a line in there that there's like I used to be in Wendy now because like he's the kind of. He's the guy that like likes R and B, and that's such an R and B like swagadocious, swagadocious. That own that. That's like your own word now. Swagadocious line, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, yeah. So I was like, with that, with this song, like, you know, Harry's Harry's gone down that route, and I've gone down that route. Lou's gone down that route. Zane's gone down on that route. But this this lane that Liam can have is like very like self-explanatory about what what he can do. I heard as well that the stripped it down. Oh yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that is me, yeah. yeah. Um, I actually make sure every song that I've, I'm on, I make sure that there's a, either a backing vocal or a guitar played on, just nice. so there's like a like, nod. Yeah. Uh, Love Yourself is one of my favourite songs of the last kind of five years or so. I just love it. Did you not toy with the idea of how, keeping it for yourself? No, and ev like, th this is the thing, because everyone has a different story about that now, but I played it to all the people I play my records to, uh, and every single one of them was like, eh. You know, but uh, but man, it's it's the way the it's the way the fucking cookie crumbles, and, and like, also it's his song. He owns it. Like the way he does it is yeah. so cool. And and for me, like I had a year off and had one of the biggest songs in the world that someone else sung. I didn't I didn't have to do anything. I, I had a year off and could still earn. Like it was uh, it was the best possible outcome for me. Like I I don't think if I'd have released that song, it would have been a hit personally because I think it came at a time where. He was so polarizing, mm. and no one wanted him to win. And then he came with "What do you mean?" and it suddenly shifted, and people were like, "Oh, actually, this is really fucking good." And then "Sorry" came, and then "Love Yourself" came, and, and then it just cemented him as a, a great artist. And and this um, this year that you had off, I think it's a very good idea for anybody to, you know, have time to 
when you've put so much time and energy and effort into something, it's, I think it's just as important to give yourself the opportunity to step back and actually take it in. I think so many opportunities are missed mm. of just going, I did this, but also to focus your energy on what you're going to do next. Yeah, I massively agree with that. But also, just you've just missed out on so much. Like I, I always say when people come to London, like artists come to London and they're like, oh, I love London. I'm like, but this isn't England, mate. This is like, this is... This is like such a small part of it. Go, go, go out and see more. Um, and people never do it. And I found, I looked at myself and I was like, well, I, I think Japan is Tokyo. When actually it's not. Like Tokyo is like super different to Kyoto. But I'd never been to Kyoto. So I like, on my year off, that was like my thing. I was like, I'm going to go to places that I kind of just, you kind of just put them all into one. They're like, for Australia, I was just like, oh, Australia, Sydney, Melbourne. And so I was like, no, it's not. I'm going to get a mini and drive up the coast and see all these small Australian town and it was really fucking worth it really really cool and did you I know this is a shitty sentence but did you learn anything about yourself that you were able to then apply to this new record while you were out there did you have you approached this record differently because of the time off I don't know I think I realized who my group of friends were because I spent pretty much all all year with my girl my girlfriend is in my group of friends We, we she went to my high school as well and we kind of spent our whole year with 12 people and it cut it has made it a lot different because like when I'm on tour it's like my touring team and then I'm hanging out with other artists and that's super cool but you never really you never never really have this kind of conversation when you've just met someone you know it's uh and I think um I think it's it's important sometimes just to sit down and complain you know like because you're not meant to complain because like I, I say um I, on the first song on Divide, uh, uh, I have a line where I say, nobody wants to see you down in the dumps because you're living your dream, this shit should be fun. But like, sometimes, sometimes you're just pissed off and want to have a fucking rant. And if you're having a rant with someone you don't really know and they're like, why the fuck are you complaining in your life? Like, th- that's not what you want to hear in that, in that state. You just want to shout at someone and for, for, them for an hour. And just yeah, and for them, like, even if they don't agree with it, just, and that's what your friends do, and I think my year off was a lot of finding out that about myself, I guess. You just quoted a lyric from Eraser, and that was one song in particular that I was keen to know, does that take a bit of a run-up to release a song that's that honest, or do you go, fuck it, I'm just going to put it out? Do you know what's weird? It's like, I've, I've all, I, and I, and I, I learnt this from watching how my peers did it, was, um, everyone when they hide stuff it eventually comes out anyway so if you've got addictive tendencies and you hide it and you're always this clean cut person eventually it's going to come out and the public will catch you out and it'll be worse so much worse so like ever since the beginning of my career I've always like made no secret about things that I get up to good and bad I'm just like you know I can write a song like Bloodstream and put that goes on like BBC radio and people are listening to a song about a trip you know like and it's and like no one bats an eyelid because you're saying it. So with with Eraser, it was more just kind of like, this is how I feel at this time. No holes barred. This is everything. Complete honesty. And you know, no one's picked up on it. I mean, even if like a tabloid newspaper listens to that and goes, oh, drug scandal. Like it's, I've got there first, isn't it? Like it's not. No one can break a story. No one can break a story on that. So, but like, I I do feel like honesty in music is like the key to everything. I was in Clapham recording at the time when you dropped Shape of You and Castle on the Hill 
and I kind of rolled over in bed when I'd just woken up and opened Twitter. And it was like, you know, two new Ed Sheeran songs. And I remember being like, what? He's dropped two? <laughs> That's like, well, uh, that, well, that only happened because, because we, we had, I had a huge argument with the label because they wanted Shape of You to come first. In hindsight, they were right. But they wanted Shape of You to come first. And I was like, no, Carson Hill has to come first. This is like, I'll, I'm going into my fucking arena rock era and I want this song to come out and they were like no you're wrong Shape of You has to come out uh, and then I can't remember who it was I think it was either my manager or Ben who runs the label but someone just said well, why don't we just stick out both of them and then I was going to say and what, what it was once I'd be like what he's dropped two straight away but it's reflective of where the industry's at at the moment whereby I don't think there's such a thing as too much content in any capacity whether that's actual music or the cli- I well, think the, the, the healthy thing is to be releasing but it's taking labels three years to break something yeah man it's, but like it's, it's, it's weird because if you, if you actually look back in history because we, we don't realise this and I've only found it by looking back in history but like the Beatles were releasing three albums a year Elton John was releasing sometimes four albums a year like that that's mental to think like three albums a year like I have put out three albums in six years you know an album every three years but now the industry's kind of getting back to a point where like Drake drops every year Kendrick drops every year Jake Cole drops every year like it's like American hip hop artists have clocked onto it that, that this is this is the new way of doing it that was actually something I wanted to, to ask you about was um, Glastonbury uh, last year yeah. Was it last no, year? No, it was this year. Fuck. I know. Time, so time I went home and after the Saturday or whatever, and I was like, I rushed to turn the TV on. Like, I was just, the whole idea of, you know, it's commonplace to you, but having like a British lad stand up and headline Glastonbury, you know, close the festival just with a guitar, I was like very excited to. Mm watch it and then they're doing the run up before they're like interviewing all these fans that are you know waiting and then it it surprised me there was one or two times where when you introduced a song you kind of highlighted the people that wouldn't like it yeah. instead of addressing the how 100,000 people there that were like and I, I remember thinking that's a I don't know if you were subconsciously thinking about I don't know because if people it's aren't a weird thing because it exactly what you're saying is what I like so I, I had uh, uh, James Blunt as a support act on my tour and I'm constantly having a go at him for putting himself down because I'm like mate I fucking love your music and you keep saying it's like this thing or it's uncool or it's like people don't like it and I'm like but I really fucking like it and lots of other people do it stop putting yourself down but then I found when I got, because his, his success of Back to Bedlam was like far beyond Multiplying Plus. And now I've had it on this album where it's kind of got up to that level. And I know exactly what, it's, what he means is you kind of second guess it the whole time, assuming people aren't going to like it. And because like, the song I did it on was uh, Galway Girl. And like, I don't think I've had anyone in the music world even like acknowledge that that's even a, like a song. Like it's just people fucking hate it. And I think because when I was playing Glastonbury... It's not my. F- it's not my fans. I mean, it is, but it isn't. It's a, a hundred thousand people that have paid to see everyone. But with you on stage at that time, there's also Boy Better Know on the other stage. There's yeah, also, no, no. They are there for you. I think some are, but I think some are like curiosity. Like there's there'll be there'll be a fifty year old man who's not a fan of me that does not want to go and watch Boy Better Know. That it just goes because. <laughs> 
<laughs> because it's the headline act on, you know? Yeah. I just wanted to, like, have, like, a like a feed into your ear and be like, hey, they love you. No, I know. And it's, it's, it's so weird because I'm so hypocritical because I, I have goes at people for that exact thing. Exactly what you're saying. I'm just like, mate, shut up. Pe- like, people like you. Stop it. But I've just, I've got it in my head now. Uh, and it's, it's weird. Yeah. And so, like, there's been so many kind of milestone moments on this record in particular. Uh, what, as someone that's as career-driven as you are, what then is the next step? Well, that's the thing that, that's the thing I've been sort of thinking about a lot. Because I, f- I feel like it's dangerous to have a career that goes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and everything's happening because at some point it's going to drop. Um, and I'm very much in the belief that you can con- control your own destiny and I'm not going to allow myself to fall. So I'm, I might just step down, if that makes sense. I might, the next record, next record that I'm making is like not a pop album. And the reason it's not a pop album is people expect you to come and they, the next album they're going to be like, well, it has to be bigger than Shape of You and it has to sell more than this, it has to do that. And I'm like, well, if I, put, if I control it and I'm like, here's a lo-fi record that I really fucking love, my fans are going to be like, yay! And the pop world are going to be like, oh, well, maybe the next one and then on the next album. So if I go from, because Plus has done like 10 million, Multiply's done like 15, Divide should do about 17, 18. And if the next one does two, or one, or like 500,000, it's not a failure because I've made an album that I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to get there. So it's not a failure. No one's going to be like, that's a flop. It's just that that's what he wants to do. And then if I have an album that does around that and then the next record does like a little bit better, then suddenly you're a success again. You know, you, you, you control your thing. I, I, and I, this is... The, the whole, my whole career, I've like studied Coldplay. Coldplay are fucking geniuses. And they did it with ghost stories. They, they went bigger, 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 bigger ghost stories. And then when they came out with Head Full of Dreams after ghost stories, it was suddenly like, oh shit, the pop album's back again. Oh, they're so, oh it's doing so well. But ghost stories was their artistic moment, if you can say that, where they just brought it back down. And, you know, ghost stories probably did like half the amount of the album before, but no one was like, oh, that, that they fell from grace because they controlled it, you know? So I think that's, for, for me, that's definitely the next step, is to control it. Because it's, as, as you said, there's, it's so big at the moment that the only way is down. You can't, get, you can't get bigger than that. The only way is down. So why not control the fall? You know, why not, why, why not not fall and just be like, cool, well, for this album, I'm going to do this. And then the next record after then, I can go back and make a big pop song and do, do like that. So that's definitely what I'm more... And the label hate that. The label really fucking hate that because obviously they want, they want a big pop album again. But I think, I think that, that shit's dangerous. If you listen to all your favourite artists or you look, at, you look at the graph of James Taylor's career and it's like so jiggy, jiggity, jaggedy. I'm making it worse here, but just like it's zigzags, it's zigzags. It's not constantly getting bigger. It's just like sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes, or like Paul, Paul Simon, before he did Graceland, there were like loads of albums that... You know, he had did. a really hard time of it, didn't he? Yeah, but like, but like, that's my point. But if you control it, that's the fucking genius thing. If you go like, this is, this is what I'm doing now, and then you go, oh, but this is what I'm doing now. So my plan is to... And I, I'm making a movie in the midst of all of this as well, so then that's also an excuse to fucking disappear for a bit because you're making a film and stuff. Like, there's all like... 
the, the, the worst thing in the world is when people think they've got you worked out and they're like, you know, it's either going to do this or it's that, but you have a clear plan of what to do, basically. And it's, it's fair to say that you're still very much in love with what you do and you're still enjoying it and you still want to be in music. Massively, yeah, because I don't, like... I love playing live and I like... like I, I know, like... I know, like, some, sometimes people think my albums are very sort of planned out because of, you know, there's certain songs on there that are, like, pop and certain songs on there, like, directed for this, but it's, it's really just me writing a load of songs that I really love and then all putting them on a record together. And, of course, I'm very business-minded in terms of, like how I market a record or how I promote a record, but, like, actually making a record and being a musician is very, very unbusiness savvy at all. It's just, like, I chuck on all my favourite songs on one record, and then afterwards I get into the mindset of being, like, well, I'm going to do this and this and this to make sure it's a success. It's the same thing we were talking about earlier, making, uh, on the first album, doing everything. Like, I was happy with the music. I, I felt like that was credible, and then I would do everything even if it wasn't credible. So as now, as long as I'm happy with the music, I'll, I'll kind of, like, become that, the other dude to get, it, to, get, to get it out there, basically. Nice. Yeah. Thank you, mate. Thanks. I think we should... That was a really good chat. It's brilliant. I, like, I really... I, I mean, I'm kind of racking my brains now if there's anything... Uh, there was so much that I wanted to chat well, about. Well, we can... Ca- right, let me go and grab two beers from downstairs and we'll have a beer and then finish the chat with a nice. beer. There we have it. What a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that window into Ed's life. I particularly uh, enjoyed him talking about what's to come and how he wants to approach future projects. Dun dun dun! A man with a plan. Uh, Just before we wrap up, I'd like to say a huge thank you to the team. So that is Warren Borg, editing extraordinaire. O'Sheen Griffin for putting the amazing podcast visuals together. The Closer Artist Gang. Ed Sheeran himself. And of course, you guys. Thank you very much for listening. Um, I really hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to hit subscribe. And if you're feeling double nice, go on. Why not leave a five-star review? I must warn you, anything less will hurt me a little bit. Uh, Have a lovely week. Keep on smiling. See you next time. Turn your distractions off and discover your new favorite podcast. This is Bose Recommends. Hi, guys. I'm Nat Coombs from the NFL show with Nat Coombs. Yep, that was a title that took us hours to come up with. We're thrilled to be involved with Bose Recommends because, frankly, we are having a great time making this show. We drop episodes every Tuesday and Thursday, and the clue is very much in the title. We're all about the NFL. I'm joined each episode by terrific guests from both sides of the pond, players past and present, journalists, comedians, writers, you name it. If they love NFL, they're in. So what are you waiting for? Get involved. Acast, iTunes, all your favorite podcatchers. It'll be good to have you with us. Enjoy your new favorite podcast without distractions. Discover how at bose.co.uk. Bose. Focus. On.